Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative. These two stories belong to a five-part series titled Chorus of Voices, Retelling Northwest Indiana History. So today we'll play Migration Chorus and Flight Paths Chorus. The Flight Paths Initiative is one of three branches of the Welcome Project. The initiative combines storytelling, history, geography, and conversations about neighborhood life to explore the changing racial and economic demographics of Gary and Northwest Indiana. Beginning with the rise of black political power and opportunity in the 1960s, the flight of white residents and businesses to the suburbs, and the automation and consequent underemployment of the steel mills. Yeah, and Flight Paths actually began uh, in 2015, but we had been hearing stories from people we had been talking to informally in the community, students at Valparaiso University where I teach, and Liz Werfel, the other co-director of the Welcome Project, teaches. And uh, some of the students from Gary were talking about their experiences of growing up there. Members of the community were often talking about how they grew up in Gary and then their families moved away. So Liz and I became curious about this story of staying and going. And um, that's what led us to really try to look into what was it like to grow up in the region starting in the 1950s in particular. For those of you who've been listening to the radio show since the beginning, uh, we started with some stories from flight paths. And so we're often talking about what it was like to grow up in neighborhoods or how people have experienced um, living in Gary with the disinvestment that has followed white flight and the move um, from the cities into the suburbs, which is something that you'll be hearing more about today. Uh, I just wanted to comment that if you go to our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu, you'll find a lot of our individual stories about um, from people in the region for flight paths. But what we're playing from today, the choruses is gonna actually interweave together different people that we interviewed. So it has a heavy curatorial hand to it as Liz and I try to weave together voices that sometimes agree with each other, sometimes disagree with each other. And that's part of what we wanted to uh, share with you today is how do we account for our life together when our individual experiences are often filtered through, in this case, uh, racialized identities? So um, yeah, we're looking forward to talking about it with you today. Yeah, so today on the show, we're gonna play the stories and pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers tell us. And these stories will be a little bit different, as Allison mentioned, because you're gonna hear multiple speakers interwoven. So we hope you enjoy this one. This is Migration Chorus. You know, Gary, perhaps you didn't know, for a long time was the largest city in America founded in the uh, 20th century. 
My father was born in Greenwood, Mississippi. My mother was born in Pontotoc, Mississippi. My mother from New Orleans and my father from Cotton Plant, Arkansas. They had come up to Gary, Indiana from the deep, deep south. From Orange, Texas. Guthrie, Oklahoma. All of my grandparents came over from Greece. My parents both come from Germany. He was a dairyman from Czechoslovakia. There was a Polish, Polish community, there was an Italian community, there was a Hispanic community, Lithuanian, Croatian and Serbian, Greek, German. So Every little area of the city had pockets of ethnicity. It was families that had, after the war, were looking for housing. Gary was the place to, to be in the 40s. You know, it had the motto, I suppose it still does, the city of the century. The streets of Gary were paved with gold. That's what they heard as immigrants. And so that's where they went. They went to Gary. So, so what stood out to you from, from this course? Like, did anything particularly surprise you? I mean, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you at this point, <laughs> but like when you first like interviewed these folks, did anything surprise you? Um, I think that what still stands out to me, and it's something we don't often talk about on the radio show, but is the tone of the voices that come in and out. And especially because we have so many different voices coming together, there's just this real like, um, I don't know, I love the intimacy of the human voice and how even in a short little like three second piece, you feel like you get some taste of a, a personality. Um, and so I really like, I've always loved this first chorus because I think it gives us such a rich tapestry and texture of life in the region um, in this like really quick snapshot, even though like all of these interviews were done, you know, since since 2015. Uh, what about you? What stood out? What stands out still? Yeah, so I think it's like for me, it's like the this idea of like migration of all of these different communities. So like when I think of like migration to this degree, I think of like Charles Dickens hard times, like mid 1800s sort of thing, like industrial revolution. So it's like for me, this feels like really recent in terms of like it only happening like 80 years ago mm. and I think it's it's also kind of conflicts with how like I think about Gary in like 2020 or like when I was brought up and like the aughts so like like having all of these different communities come together in the 40s like that's not something I generally like know offhand really about Gary and not something I, I think about today so I think that's what kind of surprises me that it's just it was kind of a draw yeah and especially in Indiana like of all places the one thing that I noticed this time when I was listening for the show was the first sentence that Gary was the largest city in America founded in the 20th century. And I, and I know that from some of the other reading that I've done, like the city was basically built um, for U.S. steel. And um, I, there's something about like a city that's so young when you think about it in terms of time, but it actually doesn't feel young to those of us who live in the region and drive through and, and hear the stories, um, both positive and negative about like everything that's happened there. It feels like it's, it's like a permanent fixture, but there's something about the creation here that is so intentional that it, um, it's a little bit surprising because I, I don't I don't usually stop and think like how does a city come to be like I think it's more organic which I think like I would imagine a city like Valparaiso that has like agricultural roots and it was the, the the county seat like there's different things that are happening that draw people to it and so it begins to swell and like today we're seeing like 
people from Illinois moving over. And so we were becoming a bedroom community to, from to Chicago. And so there's something organic about how like I sense Valparaiso growing, but this has a, this like really intentional quality, which do you think that's a positive thing that intentionality, like when you hear this, does it feel positive, I guess? I, I think so. Like, I mean, it has like this positive connotation to me because it's, I, I don't know, it's like it feels kind of synonymous with this sort of like American dream type of mentality. Yeah. It's just like, it like it sounds like a lot of people came from like they're saying the deep south and all over the country really because there's this idea that you know cities you know gary's streets were paved with gold right so there's this opportunity looming here so it feels like i don't know like while valparaiso seems more organic like gary seems to have this sort of like draw of like optimism that's like bringing everybody towards it i love how it's a microcosm of the american story too like the, the nation, you know, like, and I've always loved that about interviewing people for this project, especially like our elders, you know, we've interviewed a couple of women in particular that have been 90, 100 years old. And when they talk about their family stories, you see the American story reflected in their, their family story. Um, and here we really see an American story of cities, um, the great migration for African Americans from the South, which Isabel Wilkerson um, has also called like a, a refugee crisis, which I had never thought about until she used that term in the sense that African-Americans were really fleeing the terror of Jim Crow and cities like Gary became um, draw, a draw, a beacon, a potential for hope, like and starting over and actually having opportunities. And I think the same, of course, is true for the um, Eastern European immigrants the white ethnic immigrants, that they also are heeding this call for opportunity and possibility and a chance to flourish. So it's just kind of cool that like this city that's right here in our neighborhood, in our backyard, um, is telling this like American story, which it doesn't necessarily have, well, we shouldn't say even has an ending yet, right? Because there's, we're like still, living and going and Gary is still living and going. But um, I, I guess I was struck by the fact that when I look through the filter of how we talk about diversity these days, at least like in the progressive community, this sort of diversity that's here makes me feel like really optimistic for the city. And, um, and he says, one of the storytellers says at the end, Gary was the place to be in the forties. It had the motto, the city of the century. So I do think there is optimism here too. Um, what do you think that phrase, the city of the century might mean, or how does it, how does it sound to you in the context of the migration chorus? Well, for me, I think it's, it's, you know, it's more, it's that draw, right? So in terms of like, it sounds like Chicago was more established by this time, other major cities were established, but Gary was something that was newer that was happening. So like they said, it grew the most in this century so that it's, it's a, a renewed opportunity. It's not something that has like happened continuously, maybe from like, because I also think of migration in terms of like Ellis Island, that type of thing. Yeah. But this feels a lot more recent. And so I think that's kind of where that city of the century thing comes because it's so fresh, right? It's so new that's happening. It's not something as established as, as other cities around the country. And I think it speaks to the draw of the, of the city at that time too, which maybe is true still to a certain extent that the rural regions in America, the population is, is getting smaller. 
but I don't think of, of cities as having the same kind of draw anymore. Like um, maybe that's starting, maybe that started to change right before the pandemic, but even the pandemic has started to make people <laughs> reconsider. And there's this idea now of like getting back out of the cities and the suburbs is a part of the flight paths course that we'll get to later. Um, and it's very complicated or complicates the lives of people in cities. But here it still feels like the city is this, like that's where you wanna be. That's like where everything is happening and everything is going down. So I wonder like, how do you think, okay, so like we're talking a little bit about the migration. So it's like, how does this diversity of communities in the forties compare with how we see Gary today? And do you think, and this might be a separate question, but also do you think that like people hold that, that historical consciousness in their mind when they think about like mm -hmm. the context of Gary? Cause it's like, we hear it from so many storytellers, but like for me, my historical context of Gary, it's like, it doesn't include this sort of like rich beginnings of migration and optimism. So I wonder like, yeah. like how does that, how do you make sense of that? Well, I think the flight paths chorus that we'll hear will help us think through that. But I do think it's interesting to mention here that like, I could be wrong about this, but my impression is that people think of Gary as a black city. And I don't think before I started doing the flight paths project that I had any idea the kind of diversity that was there from the city's inception and it really swelled in the 1940s and 50s. And if you look demographically, it actually is true. It is primarily a black city now, but I don't think that people, well, I don't know, that's a really good question, whether people have the historical imagination to remember. Like, I feel like the first thing that people often say if they grew up in Gary and their families moved away is, oh, it used to be a great city. So they're kind of thinking about what it had to offer as a, a place of entertainment and culture but they're not necessarily thinking about like, oh yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> there was like, you know, the Serbian neighborhood or the Polish part of the neighborhood, or you had churches that represented all of these different white ethnic groups. And then you had the black churches. Like, it's not like they're really thinking about that. And I, I think in part, again, that will probably come up in the flight pass courses because this migration story doesn't tell us anything about where people landed and Gary, so like in the aggregate, you have this incredibly diverse city, but in fact, you don't have an integrated city. So there might be a sense in which the way that people grew up in segregated neighborhoods didn't help promote a kind of historical consciousness of diversity. That would be, that would be my two cents for now. <laughs> Um, you're listening to WVLP, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Did you want to make any other comments or questions before I move on to the fir first Flight Paths course? I think we're ready for Flight Paths. Let's dive in. Okay, let's do it. In 1967, Richard Gordon Hatcher, who was a city councilman, decided to run for mayor. In what I thought was a shot in a million, a Valpo Law graduate named Richard Hatcher, a black man, got elected mayor of Gary. I remember the night he was elected, my mom and I had on, we had this big old-fashioned stereo console that sits on the floor, it was a hi-fi, they called it a hi-fi. And we were listening to the returns on the radio, and I turned and said, you know, I think he got it. It was one of those times where the less you said, the more was, was said. Just the silence was like profound. 
My parents would talk about how they felt, how proud they felt. They felt better about themselves when Gary, which at that time was considered a major metropolitan city, elected a black mayor. He seemed to like white as well as black. He wasn't a bigot. I didn't think of him as a bigot. And you could talk to him like he was a friend or a neighbor, you know. When Hatcher won, it was a very, very exciting time because we were breaking new ground. There was the excitement that new people were coming in from all over to be part of his administration. I mean, people felt it not just here, but throughout the country. So he was getting very qualified and very well-known people to, to help him in his administration. And that honeymoon period went on for a while. Mayor Hatcher was a very young African-American mayor of a pretty large city. He spent a lot of time in D.C. And, and I think there must have been tremendous pressure on him to lead the way, to be a strong leader in terms of civil rights. The majority of the whites at that time in the 60s, late 60s, uh, they did not want to be under the political leadership of a brilliant attorney who was highly qualified to lead this city. There was a lot of backlash over the whole Hatcher election. There are some things he couldn't do without cooperation. White people weren't willing to support him. They weren't willing to even give him a chance. So black people became better. One story that I've been told is that um, shortly after he was elected, he called all the main banks, the presidents of the main banks, to his office to have a discussion with them. And they're all sitting there, and then he didn't show up. Now, there may have been a fine reason for that. but. But what was told to me is they all looked around and, and they felt that they got the message that they were not really wanted. So they said, I guess we'll go elsewhere. And I mean, that's a story that's probably been embellished. I could be wrong, but it's what I believe. I think that too many white Americans thought the black mayors would treat white people like the white mayors treated black people. And they were not going to have that. And they were just afraid rather than wait and see it was, let's get out of here. There was a great fear that a lot of pent-up resentment from black people was going to spill forth in terms of uh, violence against whites. And this had been going on in other parts of America. Detroit was being burned to the ground. And I think the white people were, were very fearful of this. After Dr. King got assassinated, after the Democratic Convention and the riots in Chicago, uh, that's when, and Mayor Hatcher was elected in 60, I mean, that's when the polarization really began. Uh, and, and that's when people started moving out, and then when they moved out, blacks started occupying the areas we couldn't go to. Almost immediately after this guy got elected, for sale signs up, all over the, I can remember my block, which was rock solid. There was no for sale signs. I mean, I lived there for my whole life. There, there were no Nobody left my neighborhood. Half a dozen, we're out of here, we're moving. A lot of people literally packed up and left. So many people left all parts of Gary to go south. That's how Merrillville and Munster were born. Merrillville, Portage, Valparaiso. Valparaiso. You know, he started looking out and he bought a house in Hebron. Many uh, people um, who had the ability moved because it became very quickly a fairly dangerous place. We'd go out for a Halloween. I remember as a kid getting mugged. I wasn't hurt, but you know, 
uh, by a gang. I remember being concerned about how to get to school, you know, and my sister's friends being chased. It was just like somebody had flipped a switch. I was told by a different loan officer, we don't lend in Gary, there's going to be a race war there. <laughs> it uh, chokes me up when I tell this story, but I remember saying to the gentleman, if there's going to be a race war at Gary, it's going to be because of people like you. They started to have fights in Tolleston Park. It was a mix. It was black and white. Some of the people would come back to the neighborhood and they said, well, you know, there were knives. Quite naturally, folks started to become concerned. You know, my father's position was, Gary's good enough for me to live in. Why isn't it good enough for them? We keep our home clean. Our children are well-behaved. What did I do? Streets weren't kept up like they used to be. Garbage wasn't picked up like it used to be. Snow didn't get plowed as much. And, you know, the city started getting run down. It, it's, uh, there's no bias in this at all. But almost, the like my street turned into uh, just a, a ghetto. Within, I'd say, within uh, a five to ten years, not only were the homes run down, they were boarded up. My parents, they had gotten together with their friends and discussed whether they should move as well because it seemed like everybody was moving. They decided they wanted to stay and fight for the community rather than leave. Yeah, there were some people that that wanted to stay and did stay and they're still there today. But um, there wasn't a, a big upswelling of sentiment about, you know, we're going to keep Gary the way it was because a lot of people saw the writing on the wall and, and said, I'm getting out of here. Okay, and again, you're listening to Oakland Project Radio and WVLP. Today we're playing um, from our Flight Paths Initiative some choruses where we have taken different interviews we've done and interwoven the voices together to help us tell a, a more collective story. Um, I mean, one of the places I want to start with this is like what facts are here? Mm -hmm. Well, Mayor Richard Gordon Hatcher was elected in 1967. That one's a fact. And he had been a city council person yeah. before that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also have like, he was a Falpo Law graduate. Mm -hmm. It's a major metropolitan city that elected a black mayor. And there's that list of sort of historical facts. You know, Dr. King got assassinated, the Democratic Convention, the riots in Hatcher, uh, the riots in Chicago. Um, I'm just struck by like actually how few the facts are. I mean, it's one of our longer stories too. But if you actually start to comb through for what's factual here, like what can be sort of looked at through the historical record, it's very precise. <laughs> um, and then we start to get to a lot of reactions and interpretations of those those facts. So I wonder um, if you see either any other facts or if you want to start pulling out some of the reactions or interpretations that really stood out to you. Yeah, so okay, so one thing I wanted to gauge from you is like, one of the things that when I first heard this story, like, I don't know, five years ago, maybe, okay. it was just like, Gary elected a black mayor in 1967, like, blew my mind. I'm like, what? I didn't know that. I mean, maybe other people know that here, but it's like, that wasn't in my consciousness. So, like, was that something that, like, surprised you? I mean, it's like Indiana still, like, that's just like, whoa. So was it his his racial identity as a black person that that you were just like, 
I can't imagine anywhere in Indiana electing a black mayor. I think so. And also like it's 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 like a combination of like right Jim Crow and like the civil yeah. rights movement yeah. and like Dr. King being assassinated. So like those are the things that are in my mind of like like what the black experience looked like, you know, in my limited understanding in the 1960s. And so that the election of Mayor Hatcher seems like almost like a contradiction to that. It's like he was able to garner enough support to be elected into office in the 1960s. And that I don't know, that just feels so out of out of my understanding of what would happen in the 1960s like that really surprised me yeah and i think i think it sounds like the, according to the other storytellers that you were not alone in that i mean that people in that at that time actually were really surprised as well and um i mean we we know like from this perspective that uh he was the first mayor black mayor for a city that size alongside cleveland and of course i'm going to totally blank on the <laughs> <laughs> the mayor's name from Cleveland, who also was elected that same year. So it was a it was a pretty big deal. I mean, one of the storytellers even talks about how um, how exciting it was, and that it it actually drew national attention, not just local attention, and that that sort of enthusiasm um, and sort of swelling of of energy allowed him to attract people into his administration that maybe otherwise wouldn't have happened. So. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in being surprised by that. Like that particular fact now to me, I, I don't even know if I could remember back to like when I first learned it, how I felt about it. Cause it's so like at the core of this, of this regional story that I have no recollection anymore of my first <laughs> reaction to it. Yeah, what about how do you hear people in the region reacting to his election? So, I mean, I think we get a lot of different perspectives, or at least a few different that are that are yeah. really contradictory, right? So it's really hard to like understand, and I don't even think this exists, but like an overall sentiment for Hatcher's election, um, because there's just, I mean, so we have one speaker sitting on the floor listening to the radio, and you know, hearing that he got elected for the first time and saying that the silence of just realizing he was elected was just profound. I know, so I just, love that line. It's yeah. just, it's very powerful. It's, so it's just like, so there's that excitement, right? That's happening. And then, I don't know, I, I there's some there's some sentiment about like, you know, people were, were fearful of what, what it meant to elect a black mayor in the 1960s and like what that would mean for white residents. And so we, we don't get to know like the, the the ethnicities and races of the people that are speakers in this story. But I mean, it feels it, it, it feels like it falls on racial lines, right? So it's like I get a sense that like that like the black community was very excited about this and like drawn to the administration. But then I feel like I'm getting some some white storytellers or what I would presume to be white storytellers like saying, you know, or just accounts like for sale signs are going up, you know, we didn't know if he was going to treat us like, you know, white mayors treated black residents. Um, there's just, I don't know, it seems to be this dichotomy of like excitement or like fear. Yeah. Fear seems to also be a really, really big part of the experience. Yeah. And some, I mean, I have, um, have the advantage of the insider point of view from interviewing the people. So I actually could like go through and know the race of each people, each person that's speaking. And we have done conference presentations where we've asked people to, to talk about it. And I, I know from doing that, that usually people are trying to figure out like by voice and inflection, 
like the race of, of a person. Um, and I think that's really in, like, that's something to think about and is important, both the way that we try to identify by race and the fact that race, racialized identity is gonna impact how we're experiencing events. But um, there are actually white people that were really excited and in support of Hatcher too. So it's not like even a homogenous picture racially, although I think as the, the chorus goes on, you start to see like how it begins to divide further, um, especially I think as the white flight takes takes over, disinvestment in the city begins to happen. We had the one storyteller talking about the services, like the streets weren't getting cleaned and the snow and the garbage wasn't getting collected. And so I, I, I have this sense that white residents' enthusiasm maybe began to wane earlier than black residents did. Um, that's like more something I'm bringing to this than anything we heard in this particular chorus, but I think that's a part of the story. And then we also don't have in this particular chorus, but we have in another story on our website that in the black community, there was actually some difference of opinion about how Hatcher was doing and whether the, I don't think it's safe to say that the entire black community was excited <laughs> about his election either. There were some people that were worried about what that meant for like white cooperation, for example. Um, so there is, it is like a, a good example for us of um, both how reactions can be divided by race, but also how within racial, racialized communities, like there can still be a diversity of, of reactions. Um, I need to remind listeners that uh, you are listening to WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And uh, this is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And today on Listen Up, we're discussing stories from our Flight Paths Initiative, particularly um, this chorus of voices that is talking about the election of Mayor Hatcher and then how people responded to that in Gary and the community. Do I, you have other? Yeah, so I, what I'm wondering is, like, I get a sense that, I mean, some of our, like, Black storytellers um, are holding this, this sentiment that white residents, you know, like, I think there was one line, like, didn't want to be under, like, the, the leadership of a brilliant Black attorney. But I don't see the white residents necessarily saying, you know, I don't want to be under the leadership of, yeah. a, of a black uh, mayor. And and there seems to be a lot of different other factors that sort of shape, you know, the re I guess the reasons for leaving, like why white flight happened. And I wonder, like, this is, this is a thing that I still haven't like totally wrapped my mind around because like, I don't know, like for me, like it does, it, it feels that way, right? It's just like, it feels like, it feels weird to be in the 60s and and maybe as like a white person in Gary, like being under black leadership and wanting to leave. But like, I, I don't, I don't know if that necessarily gets named a lot, especially in this chorus. Like there's, you know, like the snow plows, like we talk about, you know, well, there is violence, um, you know, the, the houses started getting boarded up. You know, we have all of these different elements for why why people are sort of leaving and, and, and being afraid, but it, it never necessarily, I don't know, points to Mayor Hatcher's 
specifically? I don't know. What do you think? Well, this is going back to how you started that comment and this potential fear that white people were afraid a black mayor would treat white residents the way a white mayor treated black residents, which I think what's interesting about that is it demonstrates that white residents had some awareness somewhere in their mind that black residents were not being treated well. And that I think is a bit shocking because, you know, we don't want to say that people can be aware of injustice and 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 not do something about it mm -hmm. such that we get to a situation where you know the power shift changes and like that conditions that had been operating underneath are now like uh uh <laughs> like we kind of goofed that up and now maybe we're going to suffer for that I, so i but i think like is that something that is coming out of 50 years perspective from the people that were interviewing or was that something that was alive at the time and, and actually I mean that that's a that's a real question because it's it is I think hard for us and well I was gonna say it's hard for us in 2020 to imagine like such a polarized racial <laughs> experience but no actually it's not um but I'm just I'm just thinking about you know how not only how fraught 67, 68 were along lines of race or around racial justice. But prior to that, the kind of segregation that people experienced and the relative, like, I don't know if it's normativity of it. Because again, I feel like as soon as I start to say like, well, that's not how it is today. I'm like, well, actually, we do still live in segregate, like, for the most part, we often are living in segregated communities. And we seem to not be working to end that um, when that's challenged. Even white liberals, as has been pointed out, begin to push back and say, well, you know, when you're talking about where my kid's going to school and what kind of kids my kind of school my kid's going to, like, I'm not okay with integration either. So, yeah, now I, I totally lost my train of thought because I'm just like, wow, I think things aren't so different as they as they first appeared. But like, it does still feel like hard to enter the mentality of that time. Um, or again, maybe maybe that's a way that we today try to excuse ourselves by saying, well, things were so different back then. But if they're not actually different, then, then that means we have to start looking at our own behavior today and our own choices or lack of action that we might ourselves take. But I wonder if there was something behind that question for you. I think like for me, it's like it feels more, I don't know, maybe like subliminal, right? The sort of like racism that doesn't feel as explicit or at least from hmm. from the speakers in, in this story. Because I don't know, like when I think of like this sort of like hesitancy uh, and like animosity towards the black community, it's like I think of like a raisin in the sun, you know, where it's a little bit more more visceral. It's a little bit more... I don't know, it's it, like people, we don't want you here in this neighborhood. You're not supposed to live in this neighborhood. You know, the neighborhood is in a raisin in the sun. The neighborhood association is trying to get this black family not to move into a white neighborhood. Yeah. And that feels a lot easier to recognize. And so when it's, when a lot of white speakers in this story are pointing to, you know, well, you know, there's violence or, 
um, like I just, there's a lot of for sale signs or we just plain wanted to move or, you know, or just find a different place. You know, all of these factors that don't explicitly feel like racism. Mm -hmm. I think it's harder to, to have that conversation maybe because I don't know like why these factors came into play and I don't know if it's because people deliberately feel like it's these different factors for them, like, like the violence and the fear and it's not, you know, they're not being racist, but these are the reasons why they're leaving. I think it's harder to have that conversation when, I don't know, it's like, for me, it's like, I want to say that like that comes from a place of racism, but I don't know. And I don't even know if mm -hmm. like white residents who lived in Gary would, would say that. I mean, I think they would point to a lot of different things like a lot of the speakers have pointed to here. So I think that's where, that's where this, the polarization is happening for me because it seems like the black residents, you know, have a have have a more holistic understanding of you know the black experience and what it meant to have you know Richard Hatcher in in the mayor's office and and point to white flight out of racism but we don't get that same story or at least from the white speakers in this story so I don't know what my point is there yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I think it's 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 hard to it's hard to dig into when, when there's so when there's a variety of factors so when there isn't that shared agreed upon factor yeah i don't know it becomes harder to i mean even to have these conversations in a facilitated conversation like it's i don't know it yeah it's hard to pinpoint i think i mean i think we and i don't know who we is there if it's like americans or human beings or what like really want there to be consensus mm. and because i think if or my sense is or my own desire for consensus is if we can agree on what really happened, that means that we just have to talk long enough and look honestly enough and care about each other enough to get to that consensus. And I think what Flight Paths teaches us and the choruses teach us is there's really not that kind of consensus available. I feel like historians would begin to push back at me there and say like, maybe the lived experience of history won't ever achieve consensus, but historians feel like their work as scholars is actually getting down below the, the personal experience of the events to look at how the events fit into like structures and stuff that were already in place. So like flight paths, this course barely touches on redlining and it doesn't even say it in it in its own length in that word so you don't even really hear it but there's the one person talking about the bank that won't loan in gary and um the practice of redlining which began in fdr's administration in the 30s so is really undergirding the segregation of these neighborhoods and not just segregation but redlining was specifically to indicate those neighborhoods that were predominantly black or brown and or uh, like working class. And so there was a devaluation of those neighborhoods based on race that didn't necessarily necessarily have to do with like the quality of housing in that neighborhood. So then that idea, which is operating at the level of city planning and mortgages and banks is filtering up through the society and beginning to spin this cultural story of like black people not having 
good neighborhoods or not knowing how to take care of property. So if you have a black person move into your neighborhood, you know the property values are gonna go down. That's like a total myth that actually gets lived into when white people begin to sell their houses for less than they're worth, worth and flee. So um, I think like it's so like, so the historians could do the work of pulling out those other factors and structures that are uh, foundational for how we actually live our lives, but it's really hard to get that just, you know, through like remembering what happened in your neighborhood at the time. So that kind of, uh, that reaching for consensus, I think is, is, is just incredibly, incredibly hard to do. <laughs> Um, you're listening to WVLP, and this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Um, why don't we play the second part of the chorus, just so we have that in the conversation, too. This will introduce a few other reasons that people give for changes that were experienced in the city uh, during the 60s and 70s. It's easy to, to, to pinpoint the reasons for the fall of Gary on a race or a person. And the fact of the matter is there were many factors, and it was the perfect storm, and it was 1967. I mean, it was, it was the perfect storm. The war had an impact on the economy. Technology was changing so that less people were needed in the mills. The whole suburban sprawl, major economic things. I mean, the suburban malls did so much damage. The mall out at South Lake Mall had been developed and it was about to open. Sears was open a long time before it moved. H. Gordon and Son, the department store, it closed too. And the Palace Theater was a beautiful theater. That closed. The shoe store stayed open longer because the owners were not anti-black. When that mall got built, a whole lot of businesses, an awful lot of businesses left. That on top of the steel mills and them outsourcing. They see they began outsourcing and automating back in the in the in the 70s. Used to I think used to employ 50,000 people. The steel mills employ maybe a 30th of what they used to employ because of technology. Japan started producing steel cheaper and um, plastics came in. The buttons, window crank arms and that, the dashboards were metal, that became plastic. That's where, you know, our country headed to, you know, in the world. And of course, a lot of the People that had been in the steel mills 20, 30, 40 years were about to retire. And they said, well, let's move out of Gary. And I don't think it had so much to do with Hatcher becoming mayor, but when you retire, you want to move someplace else. And I think those kind of things all came together and it made it look like it's because of Hatcher. I felt then and still do that he was a, a great man and had the community left him alone and let him and his advisors do the things that needed to be done, Gary would be the city that we always wanted to be, and that was second class only to Chicago. Richard Gordon Hatcher was a brilliant man. We were all happy that he won. As the years went on, as the 20 years of his reign, we all felt disappointment, but I think that we were proud to be one of the cities that elected uh, a black mayor at that time. It was sort of a badge of honor. So when we open the history books, Gary will say, Richard Gordon Hatcher was mayor for 20 years. And if you say nobody wanted him, who elected him for 20 years? 
you know, maybe he could have done things different, which all politicians could have done things different. But I think all in all, he'll be judged by history as opposed to judged by today and tomorrow, you know, who lived through his reign. You're listening to WVLP. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh. And today we're talking about Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative, which is a regional story here in Northwest Indiana. And we just listened to the second part of Flight Paths Chorus, which weaves together voices from various interviews that we've done um, that tries to talk about what happened in the late 60s in Gary, both politically socially, economically. Where would you like to start with this one? Well, I mean, I think in this one we get a lot more like of the economic context. Yeah. So I don't know, should we talk about that? Some of the different factors there? Yeah, so um, technology, uh, people talk about like things being automated and also plastics coming into play. So I think there being a shift away from steel and that, had a huge impact on the steel mill. Um, they also had to become competitive with other countries that had a better, more efficient technology. And so as soon as they began to do that, there were less jobs because it required less people. And so the technology actually has this very human impact in terms of the mills. And then the other major economic um, indicator is the, the growth of the suburbs, which is also a social policy, not only a, an economic one. But the storytellers here talk about it a lot in terms of the businesses that moved out of the cities and into the suburbs. In our case, um, it's South Lake Mall. Um, is it, did I miss anything economically? Yeah, no, I mean, I think also just like that a lot of businesses split. I mean, I guess they would all go to South Lake, but just so many businesses left. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like the jobs, the the ability to stay in Gary became less possible just because, you know, it was created out of the steel mills and so there were so many jobs there and you, know, you could kind of stay local in terms of living someplace and working someplace. But once all the jobs leave, I think that makes it harder to to stay in Gary, I think. Yeah, and if you have to leave your neighborhood to do you're shopping, then it's like what, like what's key and, and entertainment as well. Then like the only thing you have for your city is like your block, your neighborhood, your life together. And that's being seriously challenged by racial division. And then the, this economic disinvestment that begins to pull taxes out of the city and schools become harder to fund and it just, compiles and compounds and becomes a bit of a snowball effect. Um, so the city itself loses its luster and that kind of initial attraction we heard in the migration chorus of like, you know, this was the place, the place to be. Um, do you, and maybe this isn't the best place to start, but do you agree with this speaker who says it was the perfect storm or, and why do you think he uses that phrase? Like what is he doing when he calls it you know, it's not, he says, it's not easy to pinpoint the reasons for the fall of Gary on a race or person. It was the perfect storm. Like, what's he up to there when he's pulling that in? Yeah, I mean, I hate that phrasing, perfect storm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think, I mean, I think the sentiment behind it, right, is that there are so many different things happening at once. So it's not just 
Mayor Hatcher's election. It's also the automation of the steel mills where the jobs are leaving. You know, it's, 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 you know, like the snowball effect, like you mentioned, like there's just, there's so many different things happening in Gary at the time. And we, you know, we also hear about this, you know, social context of why there's fear. So the white flight is also happening on top of the jobs leaving. So there's just so many, so many things happening to Gary during this period of like the late sixties and seventies that it's just, it, you know, I think that helps us understand maybe more of the, the first part of the flight pass course, like all these different reasons that, that people ended up leaving is just, there were so many, it wasn't just one. There were so many reasons that people could pinpoint for, yeah. for, for deciding to leave. There's this, there's this part of me that appreciates that we, this storyteller thinks what happened in Gary can't be pinned to a race or a person. Because I feel like, I, when I think when he says that, he means the black race. Because <laughs> I think he means that white people blame black people for what happened to Gary. But I suppose we could flip it. And we could say black people might be blaming white people for what happened to Gary. They're the ones that leave. They're the ones that disinvested the city. So, um, so either way, it's like, okay, so we can't just blame one race. Or we can't just look at Mayor Hatcher and pin this all on him. And... That feels like um, like liberating. Um, on the other hand, I feel like this phrase, the perfect storm is used to like stop looking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like stop looking at the impact that race really had on this situation. And even in some of these other um, factors, right? Like, so suburbia looks neutral when you just talk about suburban sprawl, but it wasn't, you know, like it was an administration, federal administration that backed the inner, the building of the interstates and subsidized it while they at the same time stopped subsidizing public transportation within cities. So now it's getting easier to move between suburb and a city than it is to move within a city. And then the suburbs themselves were not racially open <laughs> you know it wasn't like open call to anybody who wants to get out of the suburbs and have their white picket fence mm -hmm. it was white people and there was often times in the housing association rules or in the title of the um the home that was built there like you can't sell to black people so it sounds neutral but it really wasn't so mm -hmm. i and even one of our speakers talks about there was a shoe store <laughs> that stayed in Gary because it wasn't anti-black. So she's at least recognizing that there is something about like once the civil rights movement allows blacks legal access to neighborhoods, to stores, to restaurants, to schools, um, that doesn't mean that that people are gonna like like that. So they just reproduce the segregation in these other ways. Mm -hmm. So then I just feel like the perfect storm is a way out of continuing to talk about the problem of racism, especially for this story of Gary, anti-black racism. So I get a little <laughs> get a little angry about that, that usage. Um, at the same time, it's like, well, these are all true facts. Like we're back to like how do we interpret facts? Um, what do we make of the facts? The facts in themselves often seem very simple, but 
like when we start talking about them, you're like, holy cow, we do not necessarily agree on what these mean. Yeah, I think too, it's like, I mean, going back to the first part of the flight pass course where we have all these different elements, the violence, the, the snow plows, the houses being boarded up. I think that's part of that perfect storm, right? And I think maybe that's kind of what we were touching on too. It's like, it doesn't, it, it, it eliminates the, the race out of that conversation yeah. of, of like the, the history of Gary. So I think, I definitely think that's, that's part of it. But well, the one thing, I, I do love that line too, like about the shoe store staying open longer because the owners were not anti-black. And I wonder like, I mean, yeah, that just feels so conscious. And I, I don't think that's something we get from, I mean, like, I feel like that's the first time maybe that we get that sort of like consciousness of like, well, I mean, I feel like other business owners could say, well, you know, this store moved or look at this yeah. huge opportunity in the South Lake Mall, you know, oh, there are different perfect storms of reasons for leaving Gary. But I think, I think that is really important to pinpoint that aspect of, I mean, some of it had to do with race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just that we don't leave our racism behind, even when other factors are at work. This is a little bit more of a like step back question, but what value do you think we have in having these personal accounts, like these variety of storytellers who each have their own perspective, their own filter, some of which you and I sitting here, you know, agree with more than others. Um, like, and, and we talked about how there's not really a consensus that comes out of bringing these voices together. Like what's valuable about still listening to them and, and all of them, I guess, even like listening to people we wouldn't necessarily agree with. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, that's a great point. So, I mean, I think today, like if I'm going to compare it to like how, you know, news is consumed and this sort of like what's happening is consumed today. I think of, you know, just this sort of like polarizing, you know, where you get your news depend, you know, relates heavily to how you're viewing how the world is happening you know it skews heavily on how yeah. you view the you know the president and whatnot you know it's just it can be very polarizing so i think what this does it's really helpful is it is it pulls you out of that one note so if you're only yeah. listening to one of those stories from one of those speakers i mean that's one perspective and if you share that perspective you know it's 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 not helpful you know you need to be exposed to more things i think i think it's helpful to see that it's not just, you know, there isn't any one right perspective. There are a multitude of perspectives of what happened in Gary. And so I think it's really helpful to know, like, you know, sure, there's a nod to how you experienced it, but you should also stay here and listen to how others in the community experienced Gary. And I think that's, it's really helpful because I think it helps complicate the, the narrative a little bit, or, it, or at least, I don't know, brings us to a place where we, we can see more of the lived experience outside of, you know, what we would normally, you know, graduate to. It kind of pops a filter bubble by bringing discordant voices together or discordant experiences together, mm -hmm. maybe. I wonder too, like, part of me, part of me wants to say, like, and I think we can see this maybe in some of the facilitations that have happened around these stories, like, is it always helpful to have, like, black residents of Gary and, you know, former white residents of Gary hearing these same stories together. Like, mm. because part of me feels like, 
you know, the white experience of Gary and like the perception of it, it, it is universally known. And so, and I feel like it's maybe the white experience of Gary that kind of has that filter that doesn't, I don't know, like understand the black experience of Gary. And so I wonder like, I don't know, so I guess my point to that is like, maybe it's more important for former white residents of Gary to hear this course of, of perceptions that yeah. kind of like goes outside of that, that norm, right? Because like we heard before, it's like they lived in the same neighborhoods, white residents, and then they moved to different, you know, white suburbs that we learned. And so that, that, that the continuation of the bubble, so even sharing experience of Gary would still be in that one perception of how they think things went down and why they left. So I think particularly for white residents, it's important to hear, you know, like a multitude of perspectives of, of what happened in Gary. And so that's, so that's just not one note, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think, because I think what you're saying is that the white story is the status quo story. Like when you think about, or when people make the comment, like history is written by the winners, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm the white people are the winners. And so they've told the story of Northwest Indiana, but I feel like it's part of uh, maybe our filter bubble as white people too, that, that, that we, uh, that's the story that we hear all the time too. Like when people talk about Gary today, if I'm in Valparaiso, I'm usually hear, hearing from a white person, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not necessarily a black person that's moved from Gary. So um, yeah, it's a little, I feel like a, a a black resident of Northwest Indiana might not have that as their status quo story. Mm -hmm. So it could potentially be interesting for them to hear how prevalent it is. Maybe, I don't know. Um, at the same time, I, I also wonder, like, do we tend, do we, I guess I'm talking about as white people here, do I tend to think of black residents knowing their history their history in a way that, you know, like black people do not always walk around thinking of themselves in their black racialized identity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you could be raised now in Gary as a black child and not necessarily know anything about this story and just think that your city is like, well, this is the kind of place that I live and know. So it's what I grew up with, but um, I don't know that they would necessarily like a child would necessarily have been given like this rich sense of like here's all the factors that have contributed to you know this disinvestment in our city that is like making life really challenging for us today um so there could be benefit for black residents to hearing the getting outside the bubble hearing the kind of broad yeah yeah no i feel that nature i think part of me too is like i'm trying to understand it like through my own contextual lens so I'm thinking like as a queer person do I need to sit and hear what straight people think yeah. of me or is that already in my consciousness yeah no <laughs> true that and typically it is right like that the the dominant narrative is something that the subordinated person has to actually already understand and maybe even inhabited yeah. because like that's the messages you get from culture yeah. so yeah point well taken <laughs> Um, shoot, we are at time. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thanks again uh, to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Organic Juice Market at rootsmarketcafe.com. 
we here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And did you enjoy the stories you heard today? Um, if you did, you can find more stories like this one on our website at 